And so the advisors had an aha moment and the assets started to flow, the aggregation started to happen, and the advisors started to believe in it. We're going to focus in on the metrics like net new assets. I think that is a good leading indicator about the health of your business. I'm seeing a clear pivot inside of the institutions around the term one wealth. Everybody kind of needs to keep their egos in check. Standouts in the space are driving incredible integration with their commercial and private banking teams to start with. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at Ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hello and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch. I am Scott Stathis. I'll be your host along with Bob Mattel, who will introduce himself shortly. So this month, given that it's the first month of a new year, we're going to focus on what worked last year and what does 2023 look like from the standpoint of initiatives to move the ball forward. We're also going to continue our discussion on the differences between investment services and wealth management and how we can, as a channel, transition from one to the other, if that is what is desired in your institution. So with that, let me pass it to Bob to introduce himself, and he will have the panelists introduce themselves. Bob? Well, thanks, Scott. And hello, everyone. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of this podcast. Let me welcome you to this first podcast of 2023 of the BISA Industry Trend Watch series. As Scott said, we have another great panel with us today. But before we meet them, let me remind you to visit bisanet.org for all things BISA, especially the upcoming conference, which is February 26th to March 1st. It's so big, it's now in two months at the Fountain Blue in Miami. So let's meet our panel. Kevin, 
Good morning. My name is Kevin McCarthy. I'm with Snova Securities and glad to be on here with Chris, who will introduce himself in a minute. I'm an Auburn fan and he happens to be an Alabama fan. So this will be an interesting duo today. So glad to be here. And we will end this conversation with something about the Super Bowl, I'm sure. So Chris. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Good morning, everyone. Kevin, it'll be fun to talk about Auburn and Alabama. I'm Chris Melton. I'm the National Director of the Financial Institution Group Business Development Unit at Ameriprise, which is where our bank and credit union partners reside. We're excited to be a sponsor of the BISA podcast, and we're looking forward to being on site with everybody down in Miami in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. With all the snow that's hitting different parts of the country, it will be nice to be in the sunshine, where I actually am right now. But anyway, let's get this party started. And Scott, why don't you take us to question number one? All right. So as I said at the beginning, we just wrapped up 2022 going into 2023. So let's start by just taking a look in the rearview mirror. And let me ask you guys, and Kevin, maybe you can start us off. As you look at 2022, what would you say the most effective initiatives were that you were involved with and what effect they had on the institution? Sure. Well, I think, you know, first of all, just surviving 2022 was an accomplishment in and of itself. I mean, we saw the the equity and the bond markets down and and nothing seemed to be working. So it, it kind of made executing on a strategy a little bit more challenging given the market environment. But that said, still wanted to focus it on some things to make sure that we were moving forward in a proper way. So some of the things that we looked at last year and 22 was a kind of, it's kind of screamed out around planning. So a focus that, that we'll have last year and we'll have it this year as well as focusing in on planning. So as we're having those conversations with clients, for example, with the markets being down, talking to them about the markets down 18%, you're down 12%. It just makes the conversation less bad. It really doesn't make it an effective conversation with clients. But if you have a plan and you can talk about how you're advising clients in terms of what they're trying to do long-term, executing once again on that plan, I think that's really important. We focused a lot in on practice management last year as well. Also a little bit more challenging to execute on that because just, you know, you had to react to certain things going on in, in the markets, but that's something that we want to continue to focus in on, make sure we've got an effective way that we're working with our clients. And I think one thing that we need to continue to work on is just leveraging technology as well in our practice. So once again, mentioning the things like planning software, but but Salesforce or any other type of CRM to make sure that you have good service models for your clients out there. Those are some of the things that we certainly focused in on. We're always going to focus in on partnering within the organization as well. How can we take a full balance sheet approach to our clients? So Ken, let me ask you a couple of questions based on that. And then Chris, I want to get your thoughts too. You mentioned planning, which totally in agreement, it's critical, especially as we and we'll be talking about this when we talk about wealth management, right? Especially as we think about holistic wealth management. But planning has been something that we in the bank and credit union channel have been pushing for decades, literally. And we've finally gotten traction, right? Over the last, I don't know, five years, we've seen a significant uptick in the amount of planning being done by our advisors. But let me ask you, as you look at the advisors that you've worked with, is there the appropriate amount of planning happening or do we still have a ways to go? You know, what percentage of the advisors would you say are doing the right amount of planning? Is it the minority, the majority? And what are effective ways to move that ball forward? Any thoughts in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably more the minority in terms of doing what you would call a quote unquote financial plan. 
But a plan can be a lot of different things. It doesn't have to be a full-blown financial plan. It could be four or five bullet points that just kind of serve as a roadmap for the client. And I think a lot of advisors are doing that effectively. But I, I think advisors kind of shy away from planning because of the investment and time that they have to make on the front end. A lot of input on that. But you know, the return you get on that investment over time is really good as well. Not only do you have a good roadmap for your client, but you've really set the stage for future meetings down the road as well. So I think we're going to have to continue to to talk about the benefits, not only for the advisor, but certainly for the client out there. But I'd love to see us doing more and more of that. And how can we make that simpler for the advisor too? I think that'll increase adoption as well. Yeah. I mean, planning engenders trust and it enables you to gather more assets from your clients. I mean, you want to be working with the majority of your clients' assets because if you're not somebody else's, right? And they're trying to take assets away from you. And I think planning is part of that equation. So I have a CRM question too, but let me hold off on that. And Chris, let me get your thoughts on this subject. I think what Kevin said was exactly right, exactly where the Ameriprise program partners were for 2022 and really continuing on to 2023. And let me step back a little bit and talk why. And that's one of the things we ask ourselves is, you know, why are we doing certain things to drive technology, CRM integration, et cetera. And it's a little bit about where the puck has been going. And you're hundred percent right. It's been, you know, it's been moving towards advice and planning. I would still agree with Kevin that it's still a minority. And I think in the financial institution space, you know, we've always been faced with the challenge of unlike an independent practice that could set a threshold of say, I'm only going to work with clients over 250,000 or 500,000. And in a community banking and credit union space, that's not always the opportunity. And that's a good thing. I think that's a really quality thing, but it also creates books of business that we've all seen over the years out of whack, et cetera. And so with the programs and the coaching and development, using the technology, as Kevin said, we are definitely trying to drive a client experience that it's advice-based. So that doesn't always mean you know a 400-page financial plan. We think of it as, as foundational advice for most clients. Some clients need comprehensive advice. And so I think it begins with each one of those advisors and understanding how to work with the institution and the advisors on segmenting their book and beginning to move certain aspects of the book into that advice-based and planning-based process. You can't do it all at one time. It's not possible. And then being sure that the technology that your partner is providing to you through the broker-dealer is aligned with helping drive that process. So in a sense, we're staying on that trail. Just as Kevin said, they're focusing on a very similar thing because we know that advice-based process and experience is really what the client's looking for. And that changes the nature of the relationship, especially in markets with turmoil. Yeah. Well, I think you both implied this to a degree. I think the thing that advisors need to understand is that Planning is incremental. It's a journey. You don't have to put a comprehensive plan together day one for a client. You just don't, right? You can put a very simplified plan together day one and just start getting them engaged in the planning discussion and then build it out over time once there's more and more trust that develops between the advisor and the client. And you get to a certain point if you're a good advisor, and it doesn't take too long to get there. But through the planning discussions you're having with your client, you have enough data where you can model something out then with Money Guide or whatever you're using, and then put it in front of the client and say, hey, this is what I modeled out. I know it's not right because I don't know everything I need to know yet, and I want to learn more about your situation. But here's what I see so far. Tell me what you think, and then let's tweak this together. That's when the assets start coming out of the woodwork, and you're really involved in a meaningful discussion with the client. So I think the thing that we have to communicate to advisors is don't think of planning as this big thing that's going to take, you know, a ton of time and you have to get everything right the first go around. You don't. Just start simple and then build it because it will evolve with the relationship with your clients. And that's the way it's supposed to happen, right? 
So that said, if you have any thoughts on that, fine. I do have a CRM question and then I want to pass it to Bob. I do have a quick thought on that. And what we experienced as we integrated, in our case, Money Guide Pro and NavaPlan into the system and then use the system, the power of the system inside the institution to feed into that system, mostly Money Guide Pro, and then talk to the advisors about publishing that with the client and pushing it out. At first they were like, well, I don't, I don't know that I got all the data. I don't know that I've got it all right. And we're like, push it out. Because what you described, Scott, is exactly what happened. The client engaged. They want to engage at that level. And the next thing the client wants is they want the numbers to be right because they want to see the meter and all that stuff start to move, right? I see Kevin nodding his head. And so the advisors had an aha moment and you were exactly right. The assets started to flow. The aggregation started to happen and the advisors started to believe in it. And we made that, we worked very hard to make that first step as simple as possible using the power of the technology integration, et cetera. And then some coaching and development and training, you know, to drive the behavior. Exactly. Yep. And Kevin, you're nodding your head. So you've experienced the same, I assume. Couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, clients say they have a need to make sure that that seems right. So they want their net worth statements to look right. Some things that maybe they've been holding back does come out. And I think it's a great opportunity to uncover more assets and obviously do a more effective plan as well. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let me ask a quick CRM question and then pass it to Bob. So my CRM question is this. It's becoming more and more important for us, I believe, to have a 360-degree view of the client. And what that means if you're in a financial institution is that ideally, you can see every aspect of that client's engagement with the institution, whether it be a loan or a credit card or whatever it might be, right? And it enhances the ability for, I believe, business to flow interdepartmentally if you get that 360-degree view. It's tough to get that in a CRM system still because there are data issues, there are privacy issues, et cetera, et cetera. But are we making progress? So is it possible to get there, to have a complete 360-degree view in Salesforce or whatever CRM system you're using? And are those walls starting to break down so that data can be integrated in a way that ultimately is beneficial to the client because we're able to service them better if we can see their whole financial picture? So how is that evolving? Kevin, you want to start off again with that one? Yeah, yeah, I'll be happy to touch on that. I think it is evolving and it kind of cuts both ways. I mean, you know, if you think about it from the perspective of if you want to have all that integration that you're talking about, you really have to have open access to everything. So that kind of causes some issues from a privacy standpoint. And so, I mean, the way I've seen it is a financial institution can have a CRM that's open across all lines of business. And that's great, but you don't have the customization more for wealth management for securities in that situation. Or you could have something where it's more geared towards that individual business unit and you don't have full access to the rest of the company. So it really is a double-edged sword. So it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, I think that it's great to be able to have access to, to everything. You can put some restrictions out there. But, you know, once again, it does take away from some things like customization for your service models that would be more unique to wealth management. Agreed. And ultimately, we want to get to that point where it is it is comprehensive. It is a 360-degree view. You get what you need on the wealth management side, but you also get the rest of the stuff. And I know that can complicate the, call it the interface, right? It can complicate. Salesforce is, is already pretty sophisticated, right? We don't want it to be overwhelming. But I think there are ways to do that. If you have good interface engineers that you're working with, they can model views based on who's looking at it and what the need is, right? And then have the, 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 the more sophisticated functionality in the background for the, call them power users. And I'm hoping we're getting there because I think that makes a significant difference. Chris, do you have any thoughts in that regard? Kevin absolutely said it right. It's still, uh, there's challenges around 
the movement of the data between the firewalls and the privacy. I'm going to say that we're at, I'm going to take two sides of it, kind of where it's not working as well as we'd like yet and kind of where it's beginning to head. And that is, at times, the size of the institution and the sophistication of the banking institution, the financial institution matters in the sense of their ability to have the capital to put into that system. They're wanting to get that data. We have the ability to share and push that data back and forth, of course, with APIs, et cetera, and moving to some live experiences with that. We think that's really important. But what we're seeing is that the institutions recognize they can't necessarily accomplish that as quickly as they would like across the whole spectrum of their clientele. But what they're doing is they're building both as they move up market in their wealth management program, and I will say wealth management in totality, both the investment side, trust side, high net worth, private banking, those institutions are really focusing on that that upper end of the tier with that type of experience and data sharing first, if that makes sense, because they know that that is so important inside that aspect of the space. And then continuing to want to expand that into their overall books of business, the mass affluent, et cetera. Because, you know, when we got the questions for the podcast today, the first thing that came to my mind is data, big data, data, and then using that data and using the data lake and artificial intelligence to help you start to get smarter about what's going on on both sides. You know, I say this all the time, Scott, you've heard me say it. The average household penetration of an investment program inside of a bank or a credit union, if you got five to 7% household penetration, you're a rock star, right? There's a lot of data over there that can be shared to help you think about who you should be marketing to for your financial services, wealth management, et cetera. And that piece is getting better, but it's still not where it needs to be. I agree. So we have work to do. There's a ton of potential. I think we're making some progress. And the institutions that are standing out are doing that. They're leveraging data, right, for uncovering opportunities and next best discussions, et cetera. And they are leveraging planning as well for the right segments of their client base. All right, Bob, why don't I pass it back to you for the next question? Sure thing, Scott. So Scott was asking about what was going on in 2022. 2022 brought with us a lot of market volatility, markets in turmoil. So what about 2023? Now that we've had a year under our belt, what is top of mind of this year? What are your most important initiatives, Chris? And you know, what is the volatility doing to your plan? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's steady as you go. I think we've laid the right pathway with the conversation we just had. So where we've pivoted is we're really looking very strongly at the program data around how many clients are in a vice-based process. We're looking at and using CRM inside the Salesforce system inside of the programs to understand what client, client SLAs are being met, where are they not being met? We're using a little bit of the artificial intelligence inside of the system to help advisors and program leadership identify clients that are at risk. You know, if you think about big data, we know if clients are coming in and out and looking at their accounts, are doing certain types of activities, we're able to serve up and say, of these 10 clients, we can tell you four of them are going to leave if you don't do something. But the data is strong enough, almost five now. And so it's taking the teachings and the learnings around the advice base and the financial planning and continuing to keep that pressure moving forward. But now it's using the data to help us get smarter about fine-tuning that. Kevin, I think that probably leads to what you're thinking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it is going to be just building on the same things that we did in 2022. Hopefully, having a little bit more capacity to focus in on those. But I I do think it's making sure, like Chris was saying, you know, the SLAs, making sure we've got good practice management components out there. Planning is is clearly going to be an issue that we want to focus in on. 
So some of those things we'll continue to do. You know, this is a business about ultimately what is your deliverable that you're giving to your clients? And if we can give a good deliverable, that's going to be a great thing. We're going to focus in on metrics like net new assets. I think that is a good leading indicator about the health of your business overall. So that's something that we'll focus on quite a bit. And also, I'll probably bring a tear to Bob's eyes too, but we want to focus in on risk management as well. I think it's really, really important. You know, we've got asset values down quite a bit. You know, as an industry from last year, we probably have a gap in some of our protection planning as well. So we need to take a look at that. So those are some of the things that we're taking a look at in 23. We're going to dig into protection and a question in a bit. But what you're both really describing to me is practice management. And it's really, you know, taking a look at the way we do our business, understanding that it's a volatile market. What are the things that are working best? What are the things that aren't working well? What is the right number of clients to have in an FA's book? And is that something that you're looking at as well? Is what's the right size of the book? Chris, is that something that's... um, Absolutely. So I mean, absolutely. The segmentation tool that we've got built into the system does that literally down to revenue per hour by client, et cetera. But, but I think what's important, and I think Kevin was hitting on this, is almost everybody now has the data in some form of CRM system. And, and you're right, Scott. I mean, those things, you know, they've got to be, you've got to build that tool. Those things, that Salesforce is an incredibly strong monster, so to speak, and you've got to tame it a little bit. But I think that's a focus that we've working on with our programs and internally so that that data that Kevin's talking about, about SLAs, around book segmentation, around net new asset flows, we didn't have that stuff effectively five years ago, really. Mm-hmm. Ten years ago, certainly we didn't have it. Now we do. And you've got to be using that data to work with your advisors and going forward. So that's what I would say, Bob, is that you know if you haven't built those dashboards or if you're not using those dashboards, then you need to be. Bob, you asked a question about what's the appropriate number of clients. And I think it really comes down as a math exercise. I mean, what is your SLA? How much time does each one of those clients take? And there's only so many hours in a year. So I've always thought about it in terms of I've got two brothers that are attorneys and they always talk about billable hours at 2,000 hours a year. You know, if you do that, you can almost back into the number of clients that you can have if you intend to effectively serve those clients. Now, I think one of the biggest issues that the bank and credit union securities industry, and Scott talked about this earlier, is the sheer size of the book. I mean, we've got to make sure that that you can talk about practice management all day long, but if somebody has a thousand clients and they don't have a place that they can offload them, you're talking about something where they really can't affect change. So we're going to have to continue to build desks that can help with those clients where we can create a little bit more capacity for advisors as well. You both mentioned, and well, somebody mentioned and somebody agreed that great penetration averages five to 7% is the average. Part of practice management, I would view as partnerships at the bank, especially now in a volatile market. There might be lending customers that are unsettled by what's going on in the organization or in the, in the environment, in the economy. And what better way to make them feel comfortable than to get them to talk to a financial advisor, whether it's their financial advisor or not? That seems a great way to just organically move the business up and get out of that five to seven penetration. Are there any formal plans that either of you have about these partnerships in banks? I'll jump in. The standouts in the space 
as I said, I think a little earlier, are doing that with their commercial and private banking teams to start with. I mean, literally driving incredible integration to those including some licensing and some other things that never really happened before and acknowledging that it may not always be a banker that's the lead on that team. It could well be a financial wealth advisor in that case, depending on the relationship, right? Or it could be the private banker. It could be the commercial banker, but using the power of the Intel, the CRM systems, et cetera, to really focus on those types of relationships. And it, because you can't book segment overnight, <laughs> Right. I mean, you've got a whole lot of solutions for those clients that are under fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars of investment that we've not yet fully baked and solutioned how we're going to do that, whether it's digital call centers, et cetera. And yet at the same time, to Kevin's point, there's a calculation about how many hours and if you're going to hit the SLAs for your top clients, you got to get the book segmentation figured out. But I think that that's where I'm seeing it at the top or end of the market. They've got it figured out. I think that'll trickle down. Yeah, I agree with Chris on that. If you think about this industry, you know, banks and credit unions, a lot of it has been with partnership with retail. And that will continue. That's always going to be something people come into branches. But we've seen over the years a decline in branch traffic. COVID really slowed that down quite a bit and people got more and more comfortable using digital applications. So good news is, is when they're coming into branch, they're more intentional for an appointment. They've got a purpose for why they're in there. But I think Chris really hit on something, and that was more the commercial space. I think that is really the future and, and really somewhat untapped in, within banking because, once again, we've had that focus more on retail. But commercial clients, they need the capital of the bank. You know, They need the lending facilities out there. And typically, that's a true partnership. And so when you put that together with private wealth, private wealth in terms of that securities and commercial bankers, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for growth in that area of our business as well. And I think that lends to the difference in what investment services is versus wealth management. Wealth management is all-encompassing, it's holistic, and it means much more than the relationship between investment services and retail banking. And I think that's how I'm queuing up the next question, which is more about what is this wealth management concept? How is it different from investment services? And I think Scott will take us through that. Yeah, so a couple of things on that. One is you know, Kevin, you referred to a simple math equation for a number of clients in a book, right? Let me give you the math real quickly. It takes on average about eight hours per year per client to deliver appropriate SLAs. And it breaks down roughly in two hours of in-person meetings, two hours of meeting prep, two hours of phone time, and two hours of account maintenance, roughly, right? So it's about eight hours. Well, if you know how many hours it takes per client, then the rest is easier, right? You work five days a week, 50 weeks a year. If you take two weeks of vacation, that's 250 work days per year. Let's say you work nine hours per day. That's 2,250 working hours a year. But we know about a third of an advisor's time through history, about a third of an advisor's time is not client-oriented work. We have them doing a bunch of other stuff and their meetings and their trainings, et cetera, et cetera. So back at a third and you get just over 1,500 hours. 1,507.5 hours is what you get. Now divide that by eight. It's easy. 188. <laughs> so in theory, right? If you're spending eight hours per client per year, you can manage 188 clients. Now, if you have a sales advisor or an associate advisor you're working with, you can leverage that a little bit and you can get up to about 250. That's the sweet spot. The best advisors in our channel have about 250 clients in their book. And by the way, are doing about 80% fee-based advisory business. Those are the top advisors in our channel. So that's how it breaks down. It's pretty simple, right? All right. Mm -hmm. So the question is this. So that's just a point of reference. This is uh, so this is really intriguing because you've both mentioned several times SLAs. 
So I think that is the perspective by which we should start exploring the difference between wealth management and investment services, right? Because if you're an investment services program, in my opinion, your SLAs for your clients are going to look a lot different than if you're a true wealth management program. So that's what I'd like to get your thoughts on. What's the difference between a true wealth management program and just an investment services program, which is where we've evolved from as a channel? And maybe if you can answer that question from the perspective of SLAs, how do the SLAs differ from one to the other, Kevin? Well, I've always felt like I'm in the wealth management business. So in terms of a difference, I don't think there is. I think the difference really always comes down to the advisor themselves and what they're delivering on behalf of their clients. So I really don't think there is a difference. So the, the successful advisors, as you mentioned, I think, you know, some of the common things you're going to see is for one, they will have a plan. They're going to have that roadmap. Whether you're with a financial advisor, whether you're in a wealth management shop, I think it's just taking a comprehensive full balance sheet type of an approach to the client's needs. So I think that's really important. But finding out exactly what that client is looking to accomplish, the SLAs, I think, are based on, I think it's really important for advisors not to, to lead with exactly this is what you're going to get. Let's find out what the client's looking for. First of all, they might have unreasonable expectations. They may not want. Um, I mentioned my brother earlier. If somebody said they wanted to meet with him four times a year, he's going to fire them. He wants to meet one time because that's what the regulations say he has to do. So I think you got to talk to your client about that. But I mean, I think we're in the same business. When I mentioned private wealth at Synovus, we've got a group that is their private wealth advisors. They're going to handle, they're going to work with a lot of relationships, but a lot of what they're going to do directly is going to be more of the loan and deposit function. So partnering with the financial advisors together, they're going to offer the comprehensive view for, for that client. I think Chris was saying earlier, I think one of the things in the business too is a lot of people talk about who's going to be the lead. Sometimes the term relationship manager is thrown out there and too often people try to tie it to the title. So the private wealth advisor would be the relationship manager. I'm a big believer that the clients choose who that person is going to be, who do they gravitate to most and everybody kind of works around whoever that lead is to make sure and deliver good results on behalf of that client. Let me ask you, Kevin, and then I'm going to pass it to you, Chris. So if you look at what we're calling wealth management, my opinion is that true wealth management needs to be cross-departmental, right? And what I mean by that is if you're truly working with your clients, and let's focus on clients that have a higher degree of need because they have a sophisticated asset situation or whatever, so they're wealthy. True wealth management involves not only investment services, but trust and private banking and commercial and retail lending and insurance and protection services, et cetera. Right? So it is very holistic and it's not just the advisor. It's the advisor and the advisor's teammates. And sure. there are no silos. There are no walls between the departments. They're working together as a team. It will often be the case in that annual meeting that there may be three or four other executives in that meeting if it's a wealthy client, right? So to me, that is one of the primary difference between true wealth management and just investment services. Just investment services is an advisor doing their thing. True wealth management, you're working as teammates with the rest of the institution. And if you do that effectively, it is a huge advantage that we as banks and credit unions in our space have over independent practices out there, which currently are eating our lunch. So that's my opinion. Do you agree? I do agree. I think you do need to address all the client needs and you need to find the right partner 
And that's one of the things where I think banks and credit unions are blessed because they do have all that. We do have trust departments if a corporate fiduciary is needed. We do have on the bank side, we can handle the loan and deposit needs. Wealthy clients have a tendency to use some leverage out there as well. So we want to make sure and take a look at that. Obviously, the protection piece that you talked about. And it is really important that everybody will operate as a team. I do think that somebody needs to be the lead on behalf of that client. And everybody kind of needs to keep their egos in check, too. I mean, you hear about the military where they have rankless meetings afterwards. Everybody needs to do a debrief about did we effectively serve that client? And once again, keep those egos in check. So, of course, what makes the world go round, too, is incentives and reciprocity. So I do think it's important to have incentive plans that are aligning for that as well. Yeah, total agreement. Chris, you're not head, so I assume that you're relating to this as well? I am. And going back a long time ago, almost 20 years now, I was running wealth and trust and broker-dealer for a pretty good-sized institution. And I was thinking about these things then, but there was no chance to get there, by the way. I, but you know, it's all these doors, right? There's all these doors. We call them silos, call them doors. I'm seeing a clear pivot inside of the institutions around that's going away. The term one wealth comes up. And again, you're right, Scott, there is segmentation of the book. And I think sometimes we're a little hesitant to talk about high net worth or wealthy people get this different service. The fact is they have a different set of needs, a different set of complexities. We shouldn't shy away from that. They tend to also bring a lot of revenue in. But as a community organization, we also can't ignore the investment side and those needs of those people who need basic advice. Okay. But you can't accomplish that with one team all trying to do the same thing. It doesn't work. So to Kevin's right. point, I've seen a real shift in the senior management in the wealth and banking space, the commercial banking, the wealth space, the C-suite, who are saying, why do we create this bifurcated or trifurcated experience that the client doesn't want, that the client clearly wants a unified experience? They don't expect their commercial banker to be able to give them advice on asset management. They don't expect me as a financial advisor to be able to give them comprehensive advice on certain leveraged products, right? The client doesn't expect that. They expect you to be able to facilitate and bring forward solutions and experts. And I've seen that break. I'm seeing those walls break down, which I think is the first step. And then I'm seeing the technology people thinking through solutions to help make this work, right? Because they are going to, there is still a Chinese firewall between all three of those pieces. If you think about it, the bank, the trust, the investment side of the things, but there's solutions to help make that a much more integrated, better client experience and certainly a relationship experience. Yep. No, agreed. And it's actually very rewarding to witness it starting to happen, right? right. And it's, it's only happening in the top, I don't know, 5%, 10% of programs right now, maybe 10%, but it's starting to spread because the benefits are being seen. One of the things that I think is critical is to avoid reductionist thinking if you're assessing this as an executive in a bank. And what I mean by that is if you look at efficiency ratios and P&Ls of each department, et cetera, et cetera, you can get yourself in trouble because wealth is not going to look good in that regard per se, right? But if you look at it from the overall profitability of a client and what happens when that client is engaged in your wealth management program, that client becomes much more profitable to the institution on a whole because they're using a lot more services of the institution. The institution is servicing a lot more of their needs, right? So there's a significant increase in profitability. And as importantly, a very significant increase in retention of the clients, right? Attrition drops to the low single digits when you have a wealth management client, right? So that's looking at the big picture is becoming so important from an analysis and assessment standpoint as well. 
And like Bob and I always say, a client, no matter how sophisticated they are, they're not going to have more than six core needs. And if you're not servicing all six, somebody else is, and they're trying to suck the assets out of your institution, right? So Chris, go ahead. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Interesting. I want to talk about the other side of the perspective. You're right. Five, 10% of the biggest institutions are thinking this through in a very sophisticated way. But I'm seeing something at the other end of the spectrum too, and that is in smaller community banks that may have a trust department as well. They're starting to look at that and ask the same questions, but in a little different way. They're like, you know, we're delivering a fairly deficient experience on the trust side relative to the client experience compared to what was available on the broker-dealer side from a client experience standpoint. How do we get there? And then we've got today less and less of their, what I would call actual trustee business growing, more of their asset management business growing on, on is, is a faster growing in almost all of the smaller community banks with trust. And so they're also looking at that. They're looking at, can I outsource some of the operation and create a more unified client experience? So we're seeing it at the other end of the spectrum too, Scott, is what I'm saying. And they're thinking that through. So it is spreading. It's smart. It's an opportunity. I absolutely agree. I am seeing exactly that. The smaller community banks looking to do that same thing, provide holistic wealth management, figuring out how they can provide trust services, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it, that's definitely a trend that I'm seeing clearly. As you guys may know, I do fairly frequently, I do board meetings, right? So when a board does a strategic retreat, they'll bring me in. We'll talk about where the puck is going. What do you have to do to remain competitive? How do you differentiate yourself? All that kind of stuff. And that right there, what you just said, Chris, is one of the core elements of the discussion every single time I do a board meeting. And I think the credit union space in some ways never had the silos and they're moving in the middle and mass affluent. They're moving more quickly. Uh, at times, a little more nimbly. So I I don't want to leave our credit union partners out of that as well. Yeah, I'm in agreement. All right. Well, protection has been mentioned a few times and, you know, Bob is chomping at the bit there because he wants to ask that question. (laughs) So go for it, Bob. Well, it's actually been mentioned 12 times. Um, Protection (laughs) has been mentioned 12 times before the actual protection question. There were many podcasts that didn't talk about protection as a question or never mentioned it at all. So yes, protection is always on my mind. And I'm wondering how, as we're talking about wealth programs, how wealth programs will demonstrate that protecting assets is as important as growing assets. So, Chris, why don't you tell us, you know, what are your views about this gap that exists between growing and protecting and what you guys are looking at to do it? I, uh, I'm just curious. What's, what's going on? I'll jump in. We came out of our national sales conference you know, as a broker dealer a couple of weeks ago, and this was a topic, right? And it's still a challenge. You know, it was with leadership that in in all the channels that are leading advisors, bank-based, credit union-based, independent-based, et cetera. And it's still a big challenge around advisors getting comfortable with the discussion. I think the biggest, I think that's still the biggest challenge is that we've gotten better tools to identify the opportunities. There's some great product partners out there. There's great internal support, but it's just, it's not being isolated and focused on enough yet. And so I still see a lot of challenges and huge opportunity. Let me go back to something you were saying earlier about your commercial lending clients and what their expectations are. They have certain expectations. One of those expectations is, how do I protect this loan if I'm not around to pay it? So it seems like that is one of those those walls that really could come down by just going back to those clients saying, hey, let's start there. We got a loan for you. Talk to this person and let's see how we can give you even more a sense of security around that particular product. Um, that's one way. I mean, we've also heard a lot about policy reviews. Kevin, what about your experience? What you mentioned earlier about protection, and I said we've got the question. Now's the time. 
Yeah, well, I think a lot of times when it comes down to the protection, a lot of advisors just don't want to do it. It takes a long time. They worry about somebody being turned down. Legitimate reasons, but it's still not the right thing to do. I mean, you, you want to make sure that you're taking care of the client first and foremost. So, And I think a lot of times people are thinking about insurance in terms of how much insurance revenue can we do instead of thinking about it at the client level. You know, what are we trying to do for the client? So you mentioned commercial. And I do think there's a really good opportunity in the commercial space because a lot of those people, they, the business owner themselves, they think about their next investment dollar. The best investment they could make is in their business. So put it right back into their business. But if you look at their operating agreements and then you ask them if they could actually execute on that operating agreement, if something happened, in most cases, the answer is no. So I think about, you know, like people get wills. They've got these elaborate wills, but they still have joint accounts. And that's kind of the same thing with operating agreements. They've got everything put in place to take care of a tragedy, but they can't execute on that without risk management insurance. So I think there's a, a really big opportunity that builds trust with that business owner as well. And then at some point in time, if there's a liquidity event or they feel like they can start taking more money out, we'll be in a great position to manage those funds as well. Let me go back to what you said about commercial too, though, and the comment that, and, and I hear this all the time. I heard it when I was in the banks as well, is we, I'm afraid of hearing no. Last time I looked, I don't think any bank approves 100% of the loans that are applied for. So we are used to hearing, we're not always used to hearing yes. Some people don't get a loan. Most people will get insurance. It'll get a little bit higher price or something, but you know, that, we hear that all the time. We don't say yes to every loan that's approved, that's applied for. Well, agreed. And that's part of the reason why people don't refer loans, too. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, but, you're but, killing uh, me. You're killing me. <laughs> yeah. Another thing, though, I would say is, is, and I'll stop talking and let Chris talk, but uh, I think one of the main things, too, that I, I try to talk to advisors about is nobody's in the insurance business anymore. Everybody's in the financial services business. So if you go to Northwestern and you talk to them about insurance, they're going to be talking to you about money management. They're dripping. They've got a, a tremendous amount of marketing campaigns going on in terms of trying to broaden those relationships. So, I mean, if you don't address one of those six core needs, I think is what you said, somebody else is going to, and then they're going to ask for the other five as well. So we need to be out in front and once again, think first and foremost, what does that client need? And then it kind of all falls into place. I think that's exactly right. There's a lot of training opportunities left, but you look at those Northwestern Mutual, that's a perfect example. Those things have giant amounts of AUM underneath those organizations. But they're also, you know, in talking to some of those organizations, they're looking for a, a different experience for their clients on the investment side. So there's a lot of opportunity here. It's an educational thing, and it's setting the stage with the client that, look, these are the things that we're going to look at on your behalf and setting that stage for them as you enter into the relationship and helping them understand that we're looking at all their core needs, not just the investment side. Absolutely. And six of, I think, there, as we mentioned before, there's six core needs. I can make a case that four of those can involve some sort of protection. Credit, of course. Wealth transfer, obviously. Protection. Income can always be protected, whether it's income now or income later with some kind of annuity product or some kind of protection product. I always think about 529s and all the other investment products that are out there, that if there's a protection product alongside there, it takes care of the funding if you're not there to fund it. And, you know, we used to do that back in the day as well. Again, my last point on protection is volatility breeds an opportunity to talk about protection because it's somewhat not affected. Most of the, the stable fixed products out there, you know, life insurance is not affected by 
what's going on in the market. So this is a great time to have those conversations with clients about protection. The soapbox is now done. I am off of it. And I think some uh, some comments from Scott before we go to lightning. Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking about the six needs and protection and the highest level need as it relates to the high net worth is legacy. And there's a ton of protection opportunities in putting together a good legacy plan as well, right? So it does, I mean, it touches on every one of the six core needs pretty much. So the other thing you mentioned, the term engendering trust, I think was mentioned somewhere in this discussion about protection. I referred to avoiding reductionist thinking before. Advisors have to do the same. What I mean by that is I hear too often from advisors something like, and I'm going to summarize, I don't make enough money off of selling an insurance product to make it worth my while because it takes too much time. All right. Well, that's reductionist thinking. Why? Because the one thing that we know is if you work on both sides of the equation with your clients as an advisor, meaning manage their assets and protect their assets, that protection piece engenders an amazing amount of trust if you're doing it right, because they know you have their back and they will give you the rest of their assets if you play that right. So it doesn't matter how much commission you're making off of an insurance product. What matters is the effects of having that discussion with clients and the fact that they will give you the rest of their assets, like I said, if you do it right, because they trust you. And I've seen many times we've had these discussions on podcasts where a spouse dies and one advisor covered the protection need, the other didn't. And guess where all the assets go? <laughs> they all go to that one advisor that did their job, right? So that that is the way advisors need to look at it, not how much commission they make off of an insurance product. That is almost a non-event in the big picture. All right, off of my soapbox, we have a lightning round question to wrap this up. And I think, Bob, you are going to ask it, right? I am going to ask it. And last year, nobody got it right. So let's see if we can improve on our results. We're down to four teams. Chris, what is your pick for the Super Bowl? Well, I'm a long-suffering St. Louis Ram fan. And so when the Rams left and went to LA, I kind of walked away. And so I'm rooting for Jalen Hurts, an Alabama quarterback, and go Eagles. And uh, Kevin, I'm sure you have a different opinion. Well, I would like to say Atlanta Falcons, since you didn't specify which year was the Super Bowl. (laughs) I don't think that's what you're asking for. But even though I am an Auburn fan, I'm also a Jalen Hurts fan as well. I think he's a class act and he's doing a great job. I would have never thought that he would have been successful as a quarterback in the pros. And I was clearly wrong. So I'm going with the Eagles. All right. Scott. Well, so I'll tell you what I would love to see. (laughs) And that is Brock Purdy win the Super Bowl, because that would be amazing, right? From the last round draft pick and the guy's killing it. I don't think it's going to happen, but that would be fun. I don't know. I'm leaning towards Mahomes again. I think he's a tough one to stop. He's just so creative and so flexible in the pocket and even out of the pocket. It just blows me away watching him. So I, that that's my lean. That's my prediction. Bob, what's yours? Well, as you know, I split my time between New York and Florida. So those states are out. And New York technically has three teams. Nobody came close. So I'm going to, I'm leading, I'm going towards the Chiefs. And the reason is Mahomes. Because Mahomes' dad used to be a pitcher for my New York team, the Mets. So <laughs> Pat Mahomes Sr. used to be a relief pitcher for the New York Mets. So I'm going with Mahomes and the Chiefs. It's the closest I can get to New York. Well, that's a good reason. <laughs> yeah. And he's done it before, so what the heck. 
Yeah. So, all right. Well, we'll regroup and see uh, if any one of us were successful in our predictions. And maybe when we stop the recording, we'll put some money on it. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. And thank you both, Kevin and Chris, for the engaging discussion. I think we hit on some really good points here, and we appreciate your participation and your insights and your expertise. So thank you. And Bob, let me pass it to you for final wrap-up thoughts. Exactly. And those of you that uh, have listened to many of these, I always try during the, uh, the conversation, write down my top three takeaways. The first one is the best financial plan might be an unfinished financial plan. And you know, just don't overcomplicate it. An unfinished plan is going to find you more assets. Number two, why are we settling for 5 to 7% penetration? If we doubled it, would we settle for 10 to 14%? We'd still want more than that. There's so much out there. The third one, there was a mathematical formula that was discussed during this. If you rewind about 20 minutes, you'll see. But Scott was talking about a financial advisor. Let me cut to the chase here. After the math is done, no one should have more than 250. The math says 188. So rewind if you want to get the specifics on that. Those are my top three. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to Jeff Hartney and Kat Seifert from the BISA for their help in organizing. And again, thanks and thanks and thanks to Ameriprise for their continuing sponsorship of this podcast series. Don't forget, there are two other podcast series that are focused on our industry. One is all about technology and one is all about best practices. These can be found wherever you get your other podcasts. What? You don't listen to other podcasts? Well, it's time to start. So it's time to say goodbye. We hope you enjoyed the show. I always end with this. Say goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, Scott. (laughs) Thank you all. Thanks again. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling FinTech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.